0: thinking about teaching and looking back. I, I used to play basketball in high school and I was you know, fairly decent. But there was nothing worse than I hated my coach yelling at me at the games. How am I supposed to do my best when my coach is yelling at me? You idiot, why'd you screw up? No, you can't do that. It's the same in music. I So I find myself to be much more encouraging and helping them realize their talent and their abilities. And yes, they can do it. Uh, They have to be brave. You have to try it. You have to go outside the box. But uh, ultimately, we all need a a little encouragement along the way. How you doing, everybody? Welcome
1: to Episode 80 of the Bay Shed Podcast. My name is Ryan Roberts. the episode is jeff Bradidich. jeff Bradidich is regarded as one of the leading performers and teachers of the double bass in the united states he has won many major solo competitions recorded six solo albums of music for double bass and piano and has been featured on radio and television throughout north and south america and europe including cbs cnn bbc and npr jeff's resume and influence are incredibly impressive and i'll touch more on that in just a second as I mentioned on the last episode, I would fill you all in about my experience at the NAMM show over the weekend. Uh, it was a much smaller show this year. The turnout from uh, base companies wasn't too strong. That being said, the turnout from most companies <laughs> wasn't too strong, uh, meaning non-existent. <laughs> uh, major companies like Fender, Fender, uh, Gibson, they weren't there. A bunch of base companies were not there. Um, I understand it. There's, you know, flight things, COVID things. I get it. I get it. From talking to people at the Nam show, it seems like Nam again, will be smaller next year and then two Nam shows full force in 2024. So we'll see how that pans out. Uh, I did get a chance to speak with David Gage for a bit about some things that they have in the works. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode with David Gage. I hung out for a bit at the booth for FINE. FINE is a f- fantastic new platform for artists to sell their music. It is free to sign up. And if you sign up before June 9th, you keep 100% of the revenue from your content. Uh, I believe there's a service charge after June 9th. It's, it's less than 3%. I know it's small. Uh, stop by FINE.com to check it out. And uh, yeah, register. They're very very artist forward. It's a fantastic new company. They're very artist forward. You can also check out episode 76 of the podcast where I speak with the owners of the company. Fine.com. D. Laken Bases. Stop by D. Laken Bases. Contact Dan Laken, the founder of Lakeland Bases. He will build you the base of your dreams. It's his new company d DLaken bases. I have two of them. I have two of them. One I co-designed with him. It is the five string fretless. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. Uh DLakinbases.com. They are direct order only. So hit him up, dLakenbases.com. I would like to give a personal shout out to the folks at lemur They were involved with connecting me with Jeff. Uh, I'm so I'm so thankful they did. I, I'm so thankful they did. I received a copy of Jeff's book, Double Bass, The Ultimate Challenge. Um, it is the most comprehensive book I know of for the double bass. I can't see, sing the book's praises enough uh, after connecting with Jeff for just a little over an hour, checking out his book, and listening to his records. I can't sing Jeff's praises enough either. Um, after we did the interview, Jeff emailed me, just asking me some questions about when it would come out and stuff like that. Um and he included he included the most endearing message in that email. the the email the the message in the email was just full of heart and precision and clarity. and and Jeff, thank you for that. Um, it was incredibly kind. When Jeff speaks about the bass and when Jeff speaks about teaching in our chat on the episode, all that is still involved, just full of heart and precision and clarity. The same can be said for his playing. After listening to him, it's. I don't, they're not concepts, characteristics is the word I'm looking for. Those characteristics permeate every aspect of, of, of Jeff. It is, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Uh, although we didn't get a chance to discuss it on the episode, I would like to bring attention... To Jeff's Foundation, simply called the Bradidich Foundation. The Bradidich Foundation strives to advance and cultivate a predominant international presence for double bass and to command high-performance standards and opportunities through solo competitions, educational outreach, and cross-cultural connections. I look forward to having uh, Jeff back on the show, actually. I want to have him back on the show so we can talk about the foundation a little bit more in depth. Uh, We didn't get a chance to cover it, but I definitely wanted to discuss that with him. I will have links to the Bradditch Foundation, his book, Double Bass, The Ultimate Challenge, and more at thebayshed.com backslash podcast backslash Jeff Bradditch. That is B-R-A-D-E-T-I-C-H. Um, and so, so I'm going to stop rambling. I'm well, I'm going to stop rambling here. Right? You'll hear me ramble some more in my talk with Jeff. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is what I do. Here's my talk with double bassist, educator, and author, Jeff Brad-et-itch. I got to slow it down. I got to slow it down. Otherwise, it sounds like I say brad itch If I don't slow it down. Sorry, Jeff. Jeff Brad-et-itch. Jeff brad at itch Like, I have practiced this, and this is still what's happening. Jeff Brad-et-itch. Here we are. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Good. You can hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, very well. Cool. Thanks for taking the time to do this, man. I appreciate it.
0: Oh well, it's great. You've really got something going, 70-some-odd <sighs> podcasts already. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's, uh, it's a trip. I, I love it. i <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if I created more of a learning. I started this to create a learning device for myself or for the community. I'm not sure,
0: <laughs> but it's. Uh, like it's always special.
1: I always walk away with takeaways from everybody. It's fantastic. Oh,
0: wow. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so Tammy over at Lemur recommended uh, that I speak with you, and she sent me a copy of your book. Uh, Double Base, The Ultimate Challenge. Uh, Before I talk about that book, which I have a lot to say and I have a lot to ask about it, um, have you written other books? Not necessarily on the topic because this book, The Ultimate Challenge, covers so much. Um, But do you have other publications? Uh,
0: Not specifically books. I have a technique book. Okay. Okay. I have a number of uh, pieces of music that I've edited and published. There uh, quite a few of those. Okay. In terms of actual writing, uh, I've written a number of articles. Mm-hmm. But most of it was focused on the
1: I mean, yeah, that is the most comprehensive book. When she explained it to me, my first thing was like, oh, it sounds like the evolving bassist. But mm-hmm. for, you know classical and then then I get a copy of the book and sure enough Rufus is right there in the (laughs) foreword I'm like okay great I wasn't too far off then fantastic um how much of this did you have to research yourself how much of it was things you had picked up over the years that were a part of your teaching and how much of it was specifically researched for the book because there's very detailed information in the book
0: that's a great question because um you know, when I was being taught in high school, let's go all the way back to there, there wasn't a bass player who could really teach me at that time, uh, The only one in town in Eugene, Oregon, where I grew up, okay. sent me off to the cellist, who is the professor at the university, and he taught me some very high level technique things on the cello, and just said, well, here, let's see if you can do them on the bass. And so that gave me a, you know, an insight, But there wasn't a resource, at least, that I was available to access in those days that really could go into the issues that we're talking about here Mm -hmm. in the book to to this level. Sure. I studied with a lot of different people from Gary Carr was very influential, and then many of the other base pedagogues I studied with in the summer. But because it wasn't really done to this extent, Barry Green put out a really good book, kind of a predecessor of mine. Um, The only book I know of
1: him is the inner game of music.
0: Right. He wrote kind of a method book prior to that, which I grew up with. But yeah, his inner game is, is, is uh, well-known internationally, but so it, it, it kind of fell on me to figure it out. And as a teacher, you know, I started teaching right away out of college. I started at university of Michigan for three years, then back to my alma mater at Northwestern for 11 years. And, and you're teaching and there's a few books. But as I was beginning to explore more advanced technique, I'm beginning to realize that these books were teaching some not so great methods to no. achieving a not so great result. And how could we push this to a higher level? And so really, it a lot of it comes from my own exploration. And then I studied with a lot of people outside the base world. So I got the base knowledge, but also trying to talk with musicians and oboe players and singers and violinists and, of course, a lot of cellists because there's a lot of crossover with our, our technique.
1: Mm-hmm. What did you learn from uh, or adapt or absorb from I- instrumentalists like um, – you just said it. Now I'm blanking. Did, oboe?
0: You just said oboe, oboe yeah. Oboe and, and violin, of course, and cello. Yeah. But oboe, for instance, I mean – they're always playing these long lines. Mm-hmm. So they're sustaining their breath and having to control over a long period of time. On the bass and even on the violin, you know, we can change the bow back and forth sure. and, and sustain our sound, but to try to sustain it as if it's not broken, yeah, that was really a, a revelation to yeah. me, I'm trying to figure that out.
1: Yeah, how, how did you... Uh so you have this idea of how to, let's say we're going to use that for example, how to achieve this long, sustained sound without breaking it up or hearing a bow direction shift or anything. Was that just you kind of sorting it out in the practice room and just trial and error and
0: recording yourself? Or what was your process to no, go through that before you put it in the... That's a that's a great question because it was actually back in a high school music camp. We didn't, again, have a bass teacher, but there was a yeah. cello teacher. He taught me about this technique to change the bow so that usually when we change our bow from, we call it up bow to down bow, mm-hmm. there's a little D, de- uh, yeah. uh, there's that extra weight yeah. in that you know, a singer would never do, an opal player would never do. Um, What's funny is it, I just
1: thought of two singers that actually do that in every song.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, <laughs> but then you said a singer
1: – a singer should never do. Should let's, never, use that, you know, let's use that verb because I just thought of two really famous singers that do it all the time, and yeah. it really annoys me Yeah, because they always add this little, uh, uh, ah, yeah.
0: At the end of every phrase let's get a little extra applause yeah and, yeah right. pavarotti used to do it all the time too it drove me nuts Oh uh, yeah i was thinking of
1: the guy from metallica and then in michelle branch those were the two that came to my mind <laughs> yeah they both do that
0: but anyway this in high school this guy taught me this technique and i thought you know okay well, i don't know any different and nobody else was doing it and so i worked on it and and uh then try to teach it, and a lot of times you learn a lot more when you're trying to teach something than when you're yeah. actually trying to learn something. And uh, so that's uh, yeah, certainly carried with me, and it's it's a it's a concept that I feel puts our playing on a much higher artistic level, and we can eliminate some of these. Um, I guess you can call them handicaps. That are hurdles, I like to call them more. It uh, calls maybe Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Of, that's one thing I look for in technique especially is, do you want to run around the track jumping over hurdles every 20 yards or do you want to run without that impediment? Sure. And, of course, the answer is obvious. Yeah. But a lot of times we create those hurdles that we end up having to jump over just to – Yeah,
1: learn. I mean that in and of itself is like – is a fascinating conversation or a topic because we also can get used to jumping over hurdles, mm-hmm. to where that we, we, you know, to go back to the analogy, we're not a long distance runner, just doing loops around the track. Now we're purposely engaging how quick we can jump hurdles. Mm. You know, we, we adopt that the hurdles are fixed and That's can't right. be eliminated.
0: That's it, exactly.
1: Yeah, and like those, then that, you know, you, you kind of, create a sound based on that based Mm -hmm. on your hurdles and you know well and you begin to accept it
0: yeah exactly this is is the way it is uh for me uh again studying with a cellist i learned some left-hand techniques that were not common on bass Mm -hmm. and uh, particularly the use of the the third finger as we go into the middle positions when you look at an electric bass player third finger is totally independent sure And uh, they use first, they use second, they use third, they use fourth. On upright bass, we usually do one, two, and four, and three gets ignored until we get up into the high positions, we call thumb position. Um, But I worked with some Europeans and saw that they were using third finger all over the place and and said, wow, that's fabulous. Let's see how it works and when does it work. But when doesn't it work? You don't go in blindly to saying, okay, this is one size fits all.
1: Sure. Uh, and you, you you actually addressed that specific point uh, in the foreword of the book of that it's not one size fits all, that you should still be aware of your unique artistry and you know, physique and all these things when addressing the topics that you bring up in the book.
0: Well, you think back on some of the horror stories that we've heard, you know, of uh, violin children playing the violin and getting their hands slapped yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're not quite holding it right or yeah. doing something wrong. I mean, it's such, such negative reinforcement. But the point is, is that someone's hand is bigger and someone's hand is smaller. So if you try to teach these little bit, what we call stretches in the left hand where we have to reach a little bit further, for say a minor third instead of a whole step,
2: mm-hmm.
0: a smaller hand can't do that so well. Right. But they can utilize the use of their thumb and approach it in a different way and get the same result. In fact, they can probably even go faster. Mm -hmm. Uh, So having a big hand is always a a benefit, but a smaller hand is not, these days, it's not so much a handicap. Sure. As to what it can do and apply it appropriately.
1: Now to go back to the use of the third finger on the left hand, it had been, my understanding, that that was also a different type of fingering system because I'm thinking uh, – forgive me if I mess up the pronunciation. Is it the belay
0: etude books that
1: also give alternate fingerings for the third
0: finger? Yes, the belay method. Yeah. And I still teach it today. My teacher's 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 teacher study with belay. Okay. And um, – And what they did in the Italian, this is an Italian method, they actually don't use second finger in the lower part of the instrument, they go one, three, four, and yet second finger is your strongest finger and to totally, I remember having a uh, Italian student. One time, he comes in and he goes one half step, three half step, four. And I'm like, w- wh- "Why do you do that?" And he's he's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> Demonstrated for him one, two, four. And he goes, oh, "Wow!" Yeah, yeah, that's funny.
1: Yeah. They just they just kind of accepted it sight unseen. They never because I mean it's almost like a natural response to just use one and two. I mean, those are the strongest fingers on
0: the hand uh,
1: before that's you even get into three and four.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I think part of it was actually the fact that we were in the, you know, hundred years ago sure. or longer, we were playing gut strings, which were quite high off the fingerboard, mm-hmm. kind of like some of the early jazz, you know, those, those strings that you could get a great sound when you pulled yeah. the sound, but man, it was hard on the left hand, pressing down the, the gut and holding it down. So I think part of that was a, more of a... Necessity to push a string
1: down. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could, I, if I think about it that way. If I'm thinking about if one, two, and three are all going into the weight of the string, then you're, mm. it's easier than you know because you have just more mass going into the string that way. But just spacing wise, it seems so awkward to me, mm. and that's probably because I've practiced so much with one, two, four that the yeah. idea of a half step between one and three just seems four. It's really trying to write my name with my left hand. Yeah
0: absolutely yeah
1: that's uh but then you know i think at least for me and uh you get up higher in the neck you get in thumb position third is kind of probably the most lyrical you know finger because you can get all this weight and how you can deal with vibrato up there yeah 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 uh what did when going through the book and compiling all this information and going through the research how much well one let me because talk about this or ask this how much did you beta test it on students after you had gone through the information how much did you you know before you sent it out to anybody to read through as a book did you spend a few years just like checking out how students were responding to the information?
0: Yeah, it was about 20 years.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> so nothing too extensive, just no, two decades. I had
0: four children. Okay. And we moved from, from Chicago to, to Texas here for the University of North mm-hmm. Texas. And, you know, it was a transition time. I was very busy. And, it, and I had written an outline of it when I was in Chicago, but never had the time to really – Put it forward, so I, um, I, I, I uh, finally just buckled down and said, I got to put this into book format. Yeah. But during the course of it, you know, I was able to try these things, and and you yeah, know, I think I probably changed my mind on certain things along the way. Oh yeah.
2: And there's still some,
0: you know, some things that people consider con- controversial, but uh, and and I, I, in fact, had a, a really strong uh, colleague and proponent of, of my teaching. Questioned me one time. Said, "What you wrote in the book? That's wrong." And I said, "Oh dear." You know, really <laughs> Did you agree with it? Or? I really screwed up. So I went back and I reanalyzed it, and it has to do with uh, where the pitch—what we hear—the pitch on vibrato—and mm. and I can prove it. And uh, what I wrote in the book is I can actually prove that, that we hear the high side of the pitch. We don't hear the low side of the pitch when we do vibrato. Okay. So When you rotate the hand a little bit to the higher side, wherever that goes, that's what the listener actually hears as in tune or out of tune. And it's not the pitch in the middle that we rotate above and below because the, the ear just hears the higher part. So okay. Um. Uh, it's it's actually if you if you take a metronome and 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 uh, tune your finger uh, it's hard to explain. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an open D string with a closed D, yeah, get it perfectly in tune, and then vibrate above the note with the mm. open D string as the drone. Sure, and you'll hear no, no, that doesn't sound right. And then go from below the note up to the pitch and you'll hear,
1: oh, that's in tune. So in the book, do you have it written that you center to the pitch and then apply vibrato, or do you play just under the note and and go in to vibrat- into pitch? And then do you go in and out of pitch? And also is this, I'm curious, uh, maybe you know the answer, and uh, totally understandable if you don't, because this is, who knows what kind of question this is, but is it
0: just do humans hear sharp quicker than flat? Ooh, that's a great question. I, I don't know that, I, and I don't know any research
1: that yeah, way. That, that's a, I, would have to, I don't know who I'd have to talk to if I wanted to find that out. I just thought maybe you would come across some studies about that uh, when compiling the information here.
0: I, I notice in general, uh, again, this is in general, but all over the instrument, bass players tend to play sharp.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And certain notes, especially, I can, I can predict it's going to be sharp before they ever get to it. And sure <laughs> it's just the certain feelings. But yeah, it's it, your question about the vibrato and, and where to start it and so forth, that gets into the realm of, of uh, personal choice, mm-hmm. artistic intent. Okay. I love starting long notes in, in more lyrical music, which is more my forte. Um, I love starting the note without vibrato. And then okay. then you, hear, you hear singers do this all the time, sure. which I base a lot of my playing on. And then uh, particularly in, in musical theater, you hear the singers sing and they'll actually hit that high note a little flat until it grates on you a little bit. And then at the end of the note, they round it up. Mm. So there's this warmth of resolution. sense of
1: resolution, yeah.
0: Yeah. And we can do the same. I I think, you know, orchestrally where we're working in an ensemble chamber music, we have to match what else is going on around us. So it's not such a personal choice in in that regard. When getting into really lyrical playing,
1: have you talked to colleagues or... Years ago, taking a lesson with a classical vocalist or uh, operatic singer to learn some of these ideas of
0: phrasing, yeah, very much. In fact, it goes back to my grandmother who was uh, a soprano soloist and on oh. the church level, you know, in okay. Portland, Oregon, she was uh, widely uh, desired. Soprano soloist for church events and choral works, and then passed that down to my mom. So I constantly heard my mother singing, and she was more of an alto. So she had a little darker, richer tone, which I picked up for the bass. And then uh, after my freshman year at Northwestern, I won the job with the Lyric Opera orchestra in Chicago, which is regarded as the second top opera company and uh, boy every year was uh, Pavarotti and Domingo and Carreras and uh, many of the great female singers every year and I even got brave enough one time that I asked one of those stars of one of the show not quite so famous but yeah. uh, one of the leads if I could play for her mm. and sure enough she sat down and, and worked with me and, and I did that with one of the opera conductors too and uh, you know, they're not teachers by by profession, but to, sure. they're always flattered when you ask, "How do you do that?" Yeah, of course. And so, um, yeah, I, I've tried to emulate my play more in that direction. Nice, nice.
1: Uh, and now, so, you're at UNT now, um, and you've been there for how long?
0: Twenty eight years. Twenty eight years. Man, yeah. that's a that's a healthy run. I'm in my uh, I think forty second year. I just finished teaching. Wow. Wow. What is from that much uh, of teaching besides
1: coming up and uh, coming with all this information that was in the book, what is teaching for that long taught you?
0: Patience. (laughs) (laughs) It's like being a perpetual parent. You know, you have to be incredibly patient as a parent too. But as a teacher, you know, there's there's the models of the old school where you yell and get mad, and if you don't do it my way, you're out of here, and don't come through that door again. And and that type of thing. I never subscribed to that. Doesn't seem like that's your. It's not my nature, but yeah, exactly. in, in really thinking about teaching and looking back, I, I used to play basketball in high school and I was you know, fairly decent. But there was nothing worse than I hated my coach yelling at me at the games. Mm. How am I supposed to do my best when my coach is yelling at me, you idiot, why'd you Yeah. up? You- no, you can't do that. It's the same in music. I so I find myself to be much more encouraging and helping them realize their talent and their abilities. And yes, they can do it. Sure. Uh, they have to be brave, you have to try it, you have to go outside the box. But uh, ultimately we all need a little a little encouragement along the way. Yeah, I
1: think uh I agree with you. I think that there's um you know, there, an adage I've I've used with students is a lot of a lot of times, and I, I've this comes from me, too. Like, I've had this thing of, like, oh, that's too hard. I can't do that. That's mm-hmm. too hard. So, mm-hmm. you're like, you don't even, you know, you don't even climb up to the high dive because it's too scary, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of thing. And so I, I try to debunk that right from the get-go is nothing's difficult. Mm-hmm. At one point, you didn't know anything, and all of us, we didn't know anything about this instrument. We didn't know how to tune it. We didn't know what the names of the strings were. We didn't know anything. Nothing's difficult. It's just unlearned. All you have to do is learn it.
0: That's I'm it. nodding my head very enthusiastic. Yeah, like that, I think it's, you know, to,
1: to free your mind is also going to free the base, you mm-hmm. know, and free how you think about who you are in your relationship to it will – There'll be a freedom then on it because you're approaching the whole relationship with a sense of freedom. And uh, what I love about your book is it asks and addresses these questions that um, help that and facilitate that to liberate how you think about it in a very detailed, structured way um, that doesn't dictate an answer but proposes – well. These are the characteristics of it. And now, you know, see where you land in the middle of the information.
0: Absolutely. I, I had this even doctoral student, of all things. Uh, I, I hope he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope he is. I want, I want, some,
1: I want some coverage on this thing.
0: <laughs> he knows this is true, but uh, um, he would come in, you know, and I'd say, well, okay, let's try it this way. Oh, you know, I, I can't do that. Mm yes you can let's just try it. oh you know and he come back the next week and, oh it doesn't work yeah. so finally he comes in with this piece the, um, this Le Grand Tango by Piazzolla which is a wonderful cello work okay. and bass players transcribe it for the bass he really loved the piece he really wanted to play it and he comes in he's playing it all in first position and okay first position is great I love playing the low stuff but this music needs to soar and, and cover the entire range of the instrument and so I said, you know, most bass players, when they play this, they, they played up an octave to get more of the, the singing and the, the tango quality and not quite so, yeah. so well. Oh, yeah, I don't think so. I you know, I don't think that's possible. And and he was just going, I was, I was about to scream. <laughs> he said, okay, okay, I'm going to make you a deal. You don't have to play up there. You don't have to do it. Yeah. But for one week, I want you to try it just one week that's all I'm asking one week come back next week play it for me up an octave and we'll see if it works you know maybe something does maybe you'll be surprised he comes back the next week everything up the octave and it'll work great And nice. he really sheepishly said, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, It's that type of <laughs> Because the thing is, like, just like you said, you can see it, as, especially as a teacher and, and having done it. And having done it for so many years, you can see it and, and they can't see it. So mm. part of the job of teaching is to open their eyes to the possibility of the instrument, of their own capabilities. Sure. And uh, sometimes they're their, their own worst detractor. What were some
1: uh, moments for you similar to that in your in your journey with the base? what were some moments where it's like, oh that's not that's not as challenging that I thought like what were some of the hurdles you've overcome you know that really stand out in your mind
0: to be honest the, the, there's, there's a few of those in there, but what happened most is when people would tell me I can't do it mm-hmm. You're a bass that player. was what fuel you for do? you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, even my teacher. Oh, I don't know if you're ready for this piece. Oh got yeah. <laughs> it. <I'll show you. laughs> I had that kind of fire, but but I mean, so long uh, uh, through my, my plane. I, I started. You know, Gary Carr had been on the scene for ten years or so, and and I know he fought the the bass profession saying, oh, you can't be a soloist. You know, the bass isn't meant for a solo instrument. Just, you know, my teacher, in fact, in college told me, Jeff, just stick to the money positions, which was, sure. you know, the orchestral, more the lower positions. Yeah. Which, which I love playing down there. I love the sound of the low bass, but yeah. that wasn't the, you know, the, the end of the tunnel for me. So I think uh, taking those types of... Um, Negative feelings towards the bass. It, it has always driven me. I've tried to enter numerous solo competitions when I was young, and it would be for violin, viola, and cello, or for piano, violin, and cello, or for voice and violin and cello. And so many of them didn't have the bass, and I would try to apply, I would try to convince, no, no, no. And finally, I was able to break through in a few, but nowadays, every single solo competition includes sure. bass. Um, uh, which shows how far we've come in those 30 40 years but uh, yeah
1: very short it amount of time a lot
0: of you know convincing of very skeptical minds even in the musical world the classical music world you got a lot of violinists i wanted to play this uh, famous piece by bottesini for violin and bass An absolute showpiece one of the great showpieces of all time and we were at a summer festival to get summer camp and she asked her teacher if she could play this piece with with me. Teacher said, absolutely not. You never, ever play with a bass player. (laughs) And so she wouldn't let us do it. And, and, uh, but luckily there's uh, more enlightened minds.
1: Do you find a lot of, um, I want to make sure I ask this question appropriately, is uh, a lot of, prescribing to these closed-minded ideas about the bass does that come with older educators that have been in the classical scene for a long time that just you know when they came up the bass still lived in this one specific part of of their mind first and foremost and then in the orchestra second and since the bass wasn't because i mean there's been solo pieces for the bass since written before all of us were born including these people that are closed-minded like the solo rep already exists so clearly the the limitations are of them not the instrument
0: that's that's a good point and and uh, that certainly exists though with educators they're mm-hmm. usually more open-minded well let me hear it yeah right Pro- prove to me that it can work where I found the most closed minds, and this isn't the way it is nowadays, but when, when I was young 40 years ago, I'm kind of trying to break in. It was it was more the, the, the orchestral double bass ideal and the profession that, that you're a bass player, therefore you should play in the orchestra and forget this solo stuff. Uh, and the point isn't, and I certainly stress this with my students, the point isn't that we're trying to make you into a soloist for heaven's sakes. Uh, there's there's little opportunity for making a living that way mm-hmm. but the point is is that you're a musician and right you should have something you want to say and solo playing is one of those avenues it's, it's the most specific to you and and sure. ways of expression expressing who you are and what you think and feel and and uh, uh, so why would you want to cut yourself off from, from that? I mean, look yeah. at all the hours it takes to play the bass. Don't you want to you? Um So that's, we've come, again, a long way, baby, and, and uh, it's really refreshing to see me.
1: Students who don't have the same passion for um, being a soloist that maybe you do or other performers or teachers, how do you speak to them about the artistry of section playing Um, because I mean I do agree with what you just said being a soloist and having something to say and you know all those things come out uh, in the solo playing I mean I play primarily jazz you know I play on the upright like I'm a jazz guy but so I understand the expression and the freedom of all that as it relates to improvisation. And I can understand it, how it re- would relate to a classical soloist. But I honestly, I can't wrap my head around the artistry of what you have to personally, the individual artistry of a section player and where you find that. Like, that kind of confuses me. And maybe it's a jazz way of thinking, but like, why would you do that? Mm. You know, like, why would you want to play in a section? I've talked to section players on the podcast and they've said, um, You know, very eye opening things to me, you know, like just being a part of this power, you Mm -hmm. know, and like there's Mm -hmm. a thing where you're there and you're with 80 people and there's this presence of sound and you're all unified and working together. It's like there's nothing better. Okay, okay, that's right. I haven't had that experience, so I don't really know. Uh, And I'm Mm -hmm. glad that I got that
0: perspective on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. Playing that great repertoire for the yeah. orchestra is just uh, tremendous, um, and, and uh, but I, I think a lot. I mean that's a, that's a many-sided question that that you're asking. Um, you've got the first of all just the doing of it side of things. It is a very high. Level skill to play the excerpts really, really well and make them sound musical, as well as very exact. Uh, in fact, orchestral working on the orchestral excerpts for auditions is much more exacting than playing solo music. Hmm. That may sound sacrilege to solo players, but it's not. Solo playing, you you can make a mistake and it doesn't matter. It's what you have to say and the sound and the expression and, and the emotion. Whereas orchestral playing, if, if you go off on your own, then nobody, you know, fit <laughs> yeah, <yeah. not> <laughs> yeah. in. It's yeah. really, it's. There's no it's,
1: room to go rogue when you're in the section.
0: For sure. Yeah. And so, but there's a lot of joy in playing with another person and getting it really tight together, mm-hmm. and then with a section, and then with the whole lower end of the orchestra, and then with the whole orchestra together. That it's a kind of an interdependent relationship that is the height of of learning mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the three levels of of uh, learning and really it's the three levels of teaching one is the dependent level beginners they don't know anything so they're dependent on everything same thing sure. the independent level you know in high school they start to spread their wings a little bit i'm I want to do it my way. Yeah.
1: yeah that, then, that's both in music and in life. Like my niece yeah, just turned 12 absolutely. or something. You can kind of start. She's lovely, but you can, you can see 12 happening, you know, and yes. that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then uh, what we call the interdependent level, which is exquisite chamber music. Mm-hmm. It's where you're better because of what the other person is doing and how they're sharing with you. You pick up on that and you share back with them. Yeah. Um, it's got to be the same in, in jazz when you're, when you're, feeding off of each other this oh, guy goes this way with the line and you reflect that as opposed to saying no 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 I always go this way with the line Yeah, you're in the moment uh, interacting um, yeah. that that's really a high level getting back to the teaching of it that's a hard thing to teach and sure. that's where the chamber music uh, comes in it's um, it's very interesting in the string world with mm-hmm. violin violent cello they practice their solo music the most technique the next most, probably, and then orchestral music they almost never play Hmm. uh, in in terms of lessons and study and so forth. Uh, But they play chamber music all the time. And ultimately, in orchestral playing, you want to be able to play. The first violinist has to play at the same time as the second, and they have to do the same going as the viola, and the cello has to match this, and bass plays. We have to be involved in the same way.
2: Yeah.
0: So that... um, So that, that's the, the, the dichotomy is because bass players, we have orchestra excerpt classes. Most schools, most teachers teach the excerpts. but We don't have any chamber music or very little. I'm lucky here with my colleague, Gudrun Russian. She's uh, full-time bass faculty as well, and she handles a lot of the chamber music. So now the bass players, even if it's a bass quartet, you're the independent voice. You're solely responsible for your line, and you've got to match with those other three people. Yeah. So all of a sudden... Your ear is starting to branch out away from just how you do it to how the group does it, sure. And that's very beneficial for orchestra playing.
1: Um,
0: I agree. I agree.
1: You, uh, when we were speaking, um, well, I think it was on the phone. Maybe it was through email. Whenever we were communicating, uh, you have a workshop slash clinician coming up that's aimed at. I don't want aimed at uh, you. Are not trying to assassinate them? <laughs> uh, but it's it's provided for specifically the double bass soloist. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the criteria, or that's the that's the course. That's what you're talking about.
0: It's uh, called Perastro Strings. They do the sponsorship. Perastro Strings, the elite soloist program. Okay, I think it's 19 years now, and it was an outgrowth of of my summer masterclasses that I started, uh, it's now 35 years and where, you know, it's more high school, college age. And then we now have a beginner and intermediate level as well with the base camp. And so I did lots of summers and lots of other ones in Seattle and in Germany and Hong Kong and, and working with that level. I'm, I feel I can reach that level really well and give them lots to work on. But I wanted to work with some really elite players as well, too. Sure. And uh, I have some, you know, at my own school, but in, in the summertime. So I established this for just, you know, for solo playing. You come in and it's five lessons and now it spans over about eight or nine days. Um, Did say lessons, or
1: there's there days in between
0: well, it was originally five days, five lessons. It, it burn them out. Something yeah, fierce, that's a so, lot. <laughs> so I've elongated about a week and a half. But okay. um, yeah, it's just they come in with their solos ready to go. And then we give a final concert and just working on higher level stuff. So I, I don't have to teach them how to play. Sure. They're yeah, I was going
1: to. It's interesting because they come in. the What the piece is already selected because they're coming in with it um and so is it a lot of kind of a a lot of peer feedback does that happen like where all the students give feedback to one specific student at a time and you kind of go around and it's kind of a cooperative learning yeah, that's, peers is it a lot of you teaching
0: all five at once uh generally I like in in my school environment I always have the students make the comments first. Mm-hmm. And it's a very leveling of the playing field way to go because if someone gets too high or haughty, they're gonna be there next week. And they have to take it on the chin too. And not, you know, still has to be positive. In these shorter term type things, I generally feel, I've only got, you know, five chances or five hours that I'm gonna be working with you. I wanna give you as much as I can. But I do try to open it up to other people's comments, because, um, you know, when you hear it from your peer, it, it sticks in a way that, that the, the professor can be uh, ignored or overlooked or, or just go, yeah, of course, I'll do it that way. But when yeah. a peer says it, I mean, think back in your, your past, 10, 20 years ago. We What do we remember? That time that somebody zinged us. Right. <laughs> yeah. said something. It was very insulting to my plane, but I took it to heart and, and went and fixed it. Good. Sure so that's part of you know, the whole teaching thing too is sometimes well like you were saying in the very beginning of, of the session today we have to orient what we're doing around the student and some of them need a swift kick in the behind and yeah. others need a real tender touch and that's one thing that keeps the, the teaching so so personal and and, and vital and it keeps the my interest there is that you're dealing with people and not just yeah your finger on F sharp <laughs> right right, right,
1: right.
0: <laughs> exactly
1: um, going back to the soloist masterclass everybody can play like you're dealing with a high level of performers at a soloist level they can all play and I'm sure that they they're bringing in pieces that they already have a decent grasp on. Because I would think about if I were in that kind of scenario, I'm going to want to bring what I can really, I don't want to bring in something I'm still working out. You know, I want to like something I've probably been playing for a while that I would want the notes on about artistry so that, that I don't waste anybody's time talking about the piece.
0: That's, that's a really good point. I, I require them to come with one piece ready to perform on the final concert. Okay. A couple pieces that are in pretty good shape that they're need some, some finishing touches on, but I always ask them to bring something new mm. because I want to be able to help them develop a process in how to learn a new piece. Yeah. How do you start? Where do you, what, how, you know, what, what comes first? Sure. And, With almost every person I've ever worked with, it's the left hand fingers. What fingers do I use on these notes to play the notes? Mm. When in fact, how how do you know which string you even want to play those notes on if you don't know the piece? Sure. So you have to start from trying to understand the piece. So everybody goes to YouTube these days. We didn't have that in my day. Right. Uh, In fact, when I was in high school, there were two recordings that I knew of for a Days. (laughs) (laughs) Groundbreaking, and the other one, I go, well, I can do that well. Yeah. And um, but anyway, uh, but the problem the problem with YouTube is that people then just emulate what they're seeing there, and they're sure. not really learning the piece, or not getting sight the harmony or where's this line lead? Is it the same color? Is it string crossing? Is it shifting? That's a big question for us in, in classical playing is do you want the sound to be is, is it a fast passage, therefore we go generally straight across the string with our finger? Or is it more lyrical and therefore we shift up and down on the same string to keep the tone color consistent and, and actually get a shifting sound, which is very lyrical, very vocal.
1: Yeah, you talk about that in the book in relation of two types of int- intonation. Mm. There's one for speed and uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the term you used for the other one. There's like kind of a, a way you play for, you know, a lot of dexterity. Right. Uh, and then there's another way you achieve intonation and the precision of intonation. Uh, and that's by staying on the string, the same string.
0: Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. And therefore, you have to ask your quest- the question, is this a shift? Sure, and or should I go across the string? So that that's half the fingering question. But then, once you have the fingering question, if you're going to shift, do you want to hear the sound of the shift, or do you not want to hear the sound of the shift? Now you're you're really getting into the interpretive side of it. And most of the time, people, I can say this from forty years of experience. Most of the time, people never ever consider that hearing the sound
1: of a shift yeah
0: yeah they just play the note oh i can play it here and this is easier over here that's one of my pet peeves yes the bass is hard quote to play um more challenging i like to use the term yeah but that doesn't mean that the easiest way out is the best way sure i always stress is finding the best way musically to play it how will it sound best and then if you don't have the technique, develop it. If you do have the technique, put it to use.
1: Yeah, uh, right. I mean, if you take just that phrase, you know, the easiest way is probably not the best. Uh, that that pretty much applies to life. If you think mm-hmm. about the, you know, and music is just a reflection of everything else in the world and who we are in the world. Uh, so if you take the easy way out on the bass when it comes to a fingering... Okay. yeah, that's probably not the best. If you if you take the easy way out in whatever life scenario, probably not the best thing. You know, you spend a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, his wife is Brazilian, and he told me the phrase how they say it in Brazil, which I can't, you know, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it has to do with uh, the less you pay now, the more you'll pay in the long term. Mm. you know you buy the cheapest car you can now well you're going to end up dumping a bunch of money into that car and then finally just buying another cheap car instead yeah. of just buying you know pay the money now you know it's, and it's that movie. idea of putting all the work up front to make mm. the work on the back end easier
0: great point there's a there's a wonderful uh, Chopin quote that says for every difficulty slurred over." will be a ghost to disturb your repose later on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have that on my door <laughs>
1: that's, yeah that's it that's whatever, whatever you don't do now you're going to have to do again later I, mean, I remember a theory teacher telling me that uh, not me specifically but the class like whatever, whatever you dodge now whatever you try to skate by now you're going to have to deal with it again later <laughs> you know like it will it'll always still be an issue you're going to have to address at some point Absolutely. So as that relates to what you're talking about with learning a piece um yeah I mean that makes the most sense is just figure out figure out what works for the piece cuz the the idea is to perform the piece of music not not to look cool playing the bass but it's to get this music out into the world uh yeah yeah I think that's that's great have you found a lot of students of that caliber that still tend to well two questions actually students and soloists of that caliber not understanding a fingering that they would have to use? I mean, it seems like if you're playing at that level, you can almost kind of look through a piece and have a pretty solid idea of parts of the neck you're going to be playing on and what string you're going to be using.
0: Yeah, I... Again, it's there are certain... Hurdles that are so ingrained in our teaching, Mm. what comes immediately to to the the base that it's it's I always call it the first thing in, the first thing out, and the first thing in on on our technique is often okay just to get the beginner to play a couple notes, you know, get the left hand going, but that I don't know. That, that's a
1: oh, I kind of want to hear this. sounds like we're on the verge of a rant. I like it.
0: What I try to do is, is show the different options and that if they can finger this way, finger that way, this one, that one, then they have a choice of maybe four or five different approaches to the passage. If the passage goes... Okay, that's not something where you want to go and no, put yeah. shifts and slurp and slide and, and slow that way too. You want right. something that's very crisp. Well, this finger pattern can do that. This finger pattern can do that. This one cannot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to go really make it nice and singing, going across the string is impossible. Sure. You can play those notes. Or, yes, you can play them. It beca- I, I, I like to refer to it as functional versus artistic. Yeah, yeah, there are lots of ways to play that are functional, and you can play what's written on the page there and do it functionally correct in the right metronome mark and all that type of stuff. And then there's creative ways of making it really say something and exploring the instrument. We're not just playing notes on the bass, we're playing sound. And uh, I like that. I I find if if I can rant a little bit, um, I grew up. You know working Gary Carr and and this cellist and things and sound was everything and uh, that's your voice it's just like a singer you know if they don't have a good voice doesn't matter how much they practice they'll never make it and and today I find that that's not one of the first considerations or even second considerations with people playing they want to play loud or powerful yes but there's a depth of tone there's a warmth there's there's an edge to the sound I mean there's all these different colors um it just it don't seem to be um, as appreciated as I wish they were. Sure. Have you seen that
1: slowly shift over time, or is there kind of a almost a point in time as a, as a teacher uh, where you noticed okay something's happening and now they just they're overlooking the nuance, hmm. or has it been a gradual kind of shift? The more I mean, I think in society, we don't observe nuance that well. Yeah. Everything's flashy and colorful and immediate.
0: Yeah, that that's hard to say in terms of, uh, it was definitely gradual, like most change. Sure. Um, but I think partly maybe that the fact that our instrument is easier to play today, the strings, you can have them lower to the fingerboard. They're not as thick. Uh, the bass can be set up and bases are being made that are much easier to get around into the higher positions and things like that, um, which is great. It makes, but it, you would think that that would allow us to then just delve into the music and, and try to serve it a little bit better. I mean, some people certainly are, don't get me wrong, but uh, as a general rule, I still find the first response from students is finding the easiest way. Yeah. You'll the teachers say it to, oh, this one's much more, much easier. Yeah. Okay. That's nice. But it's better. Right. And that's where the question lies.
1: Um, when you talk to students about selecting material, what, what do you have them look at? Or what's the, I don't want to say criteria. What are the characteristics that you try to instill in students when selecting pieces well, to work then, on?
0: they usually gravitate towards a certain style. Most of us gravitate towards romantic music,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but some gravitate towards Bach or classical music. And, and then that's all they want to play. Yeah. So, whoa, 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 whoa! we have to, there's so many different styles we can yeah. learn. This the baroque music it requires a totally different movement of the bow, a bow stroke than heavy romantic music. So you almost are learning two different styles, two different instruments. Um, but, I, for recitals, whether it's my undergraduates or graduates, I require a contemporary piece. Oh, can I play the Hindemith Sonata? No, that's 1949. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Because I want them to keep exploring new language mm-hmm. in music. So that's that. And then also a chamber piece. They have to play a piece with, with other players. or oh, they don't know any. Well, <laughs> hey, now you got some research <laughs> you go YouTube all the time you use it as your research and find out what's out there sure. i mean of course i have a, a large library and they can look through that and then um, uh, they hear other people playing class and and uh, they like something or some style and i'll introduce but from my standpoint i'm looking to push them to the next level but not try to jump three or four levels Sure. Because then you're not learning the piece, you're learning the technique it takes to play the piece. I would rather you work on your technique so that when you come to the music, you can, you know, you basically have that technique ready to go. It may not be refined yet, but but you're not uh, spending time using, mm-hmm. like like Bach, the young players, everybody wants to play Bach, which is fabulous because it's such great music. Well, the cello suites, yeah. is that the one yeah. that they... Yeah. All the cello suites... And then you get people doing it who don't have the technique to just do a simple string crossing.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, so they're developing these bad habits. It's the sure. same thing with orchestral excerpts. Some of mm-hmm. them are, are very challenging, very difficult. You can't learn about half of the orchestral repertoire if you can't play the bow stroke spiccato, the bouncing bow stroke. Right. If you can't do that, why, why are you working on a piece that requires it? Sure. You're not going to learn it. Working on that piece, you need to learn it where you can look at it and see it and feel it and, and be patient with it until it becomes part of your arsenal. Yeah. Then the piece that requires spiccato is readily available. That's sure. what happens on uh, the other string instruments, if I, if I may be so bold, is they learn how to play their instrument long before they enter into the orchestral excerpts and then the orchestral excerpts are stuff they can already do. Right. The technically it's accessible.
1: Yeah. Um, You said something in passing a little bit about getting into the harmony within a solo piece. Talk to me about that, because I mean, when I think of harmony as a jazz musician, jazz musicians have a much different approach to harmony. A um, much, much more developed yeah, well, state <laughs> you knowledge. Depending. I will admit. You know, enter, enter jazz musician joke there. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> um, that's yeah. the idea. It's a very, you know, that's something that's a part of our thing. You know, we don't, obviously, we don't spend the same amount of time probably with the bow as, you mm-hmm. know, the classical player, but navigating harmony is uh, a skill that has to be developed. Uh, but for the classical musician, How does harmony relate to how you shape a phrase as a soloist?
0: Um, It's not as thought about as it should be probably, but we do hear it and respond instinctively. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, you know i i start with just real simple uh, like in in bach for instance he has uh, two minuets in each box suite there's the first minuet the second minuet mm-hmm. first one is in major in the first suite for instance the first one's in major and therefore the second one is in minor so i'll ask him what's the basic difference between these two minuets well one's faster and one's slower and one's happy and one's sad one's major you start with something just that basic and then you go oh okay so if it's happier how do we approach it from a playing standpoint Mm -hmm. and does that mean you put the bow more heavily into the string or lighter or faster or closer to the bridge know, all these different tone color uh, things that reflect the the sound now as you get into more romantic and, and and more complex harmonies. You look at those really intense harmonies, the, 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 the tritones, and the, just yeah. a lot of dissonance.
1: A lot of upper structure yeah. in the chord. You're dealing with ninths and thirteens, and yeah, is that
0: yeah. does that have an edge to the sound? Does that make you feel like someone's poking you with a, something sharp? then you want to play with a more of an edge to your sound you know a little bit like that and how do you do that technique where you go a little more to the bridge you put the, the bow a little more on the on the side of the hair and you, you, you just manipulate it differently right. whereas right. if the tone is this warm impressionistic uh, wow. velvety soft summer day with a little wind little breeze blowing through the the, the air how do you create that sound mhm If you don't even know it exists, then, of course, you you can't really create it. Sure. Sure.
1: Um, Is that a big aspect of your – how you communicate with students is creating this imagery and visualization to the
0: tone color? I try to to do that as much as I can. I know there's some people who have just fabulous analogies and and things like that. I find those to be helpful too, but – what you want to do is, is find something that they can relate to. Of course, That's I'll often ask them, "Do you play sports?" You know, and a lot of them haven't played sports. So there goes all my sports <laughs> analogies. <laughs> <laughs> like shooting baskets.
1: Yeah, because you played basketball, I was going to make some basketball joke. Like you're going to you're you going to tell them to take it to the paint. You know, yeah.
0: <laughs> you have to do the same muscle motion to, to sure. basket, you know, and memorize that muscle motion. It's the same in the left hand. There's a muscle motion to tell you how far to go. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, sound, the exploration of sound. There's there's uh, what I love and in, in some of the pieces I play really go low on the bass. And I love getting in there and giving it that wah, 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 kind of really heavy vibrato. And when you use Like a sort of, really
1: wide vibrato?
0: Really wide vibrato yeah. and a little secret that I think I'm the only one that does is I nice. actually uh, use my bow to help the vibrato. Oh. I go wah, 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 wah with the bow while I'm doing it with the left hand. Okay. To really create that heavy ho, oh, oh, ho, oh, ho yeah. type of sound of, uh, you know, the, if the piece calls for it. And also when you play down low, it's... Yeah, I know some of your listeners aren't going to relate to this, but just a little shop talk. We usually play with curved fingers in the left hand. It's faster and stronger and, and can really get around the instrument. But Sorry. when we want a fat vibrato, we usually collapse the finger, which mm. puts more flesh on the string, and you can get a little more of that ya-ya-ya yeah, yeah, yeah quality. Interesting. And so when I'm playing those low notes, I'm always collapsing my finger. And once in a while, my students will go, Mr. B, you're... Can we use collapsed fingers? (laughs) Because I'm up against collapsed fingers. And I say, shh, don't tell anybody. (laughs) Circumstances, yes, because it can really juice up the vibrato. Sure. Not every note calls for a juicy vibrato sometimes. I mean, just if I were to ask just a general question, when you play softer, should your vibrato be faster or slower? Most people will say slower. In fact, the vast majority of say slower. When in fact, it's the opposite that's true. Because if you're playing very soft, there's not a lot of energy going in the bow and you go ya, yeah, ya, yeah, ya, yeah, ya, yeah, ya yeah, with your vibrato, it just doesn't sound like music. Mm. But if you play light with the bow, but just have a fast but not intense vibrato, it keeps the music alive and creates this shimmer. If it was a... Um, you know if, it's, if we had vi- video you would yeah. you know create like shimmering water that type of thing as opposed to a, a waterfall or whatever
1: when performing and you you mentioned a couple right here and we talked about it just a second ago you talked to students about this kind of visualization mm-hmm. um you know, of a scenario recreating a mood that an atmosphere would create is that where your mind goes when you perform are you trying to paint this picture through uh, through what you're playing and what your sound is are you trying to get the or hoping so trying is such a forceful word are you hoping that the audience and listeners engage and kind of feel
0: and can picture
1: what you're picturing that's such a
0: that's such a great question because what you're thinking and feeling when you play on stage it ends the moment you let it go it's perceived however the perceiver in whatever kind of state of mind they're in Mm -hmm. and uh, I have this one piece that I've always championed it's uh, called Meditation Hebraic it's a Jewish meditation by Ernest Bloch and I remember one time I was performing at a summer music festival and I played it because, you know, it's my piece and I played it and, you know, I was just wanting it to be so great. And I came backstage afterwards and I was really disappointed. I just, oh man, I didn't do it. You know, it was just, ah, oh, I was really frustrated. And someone said, good job. And I said, no, 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 mm. no. Someone came up to me and they said, you lifted me six feet off the ground. Wow. And I said, yeah, no, no, I didn't. I said, no, no, I really, it wasn't very good. Who am I to tell him yeah. what he perceived from my yeah. performance? Because my message of the mood and the sound was still getting across. It wasn't as exact and and perfect as I had maybe done it in the practice room. But that's my perception. That's not mm-hmm. their perception. Mm-hmm. And this same piece is is one that uh, for analogies, I'll, I'll do something. For instance, this piece in my mind is a day in the life of a Jewish person. You hear mm-hmm. the sun rising. And you hear Lachayim in the middle, and, and uh, you hear great tragedy at the end, and then you hear the sunset at the very finish. So, with that image in my mind, I feel I can really bring the piece to life, as opposed to, okay, I start on this low note and I go to this high note, and I'm so forth. But uh, as far as thinking that while I'm playing, I would say I don't. Okay. Some people may, I I use an analogy of a leaf falling in a lot of our music, you know, there's these little kind of improvisatory, to me, that's a leaf being blown up in the air a little bit and then falling down a little bit and being caught by a breeze again and settling gently to earth. We have a lot of phrases that go that way. So to know that that's what the phrase is doing, that helps bring it to life.
1: Where does your mind go when you're performing? I mean, obviously, world-class player, like, you know, you've practiced the piece. It's performance ready. You're getting ready to put on the concert. Where is your mind at when performing this? Is it based in the emotional content of the piece? If you're not specifically have a an image in mind that you're trying to communicate, is it just the emotional content of the piece that you're trying to um I don't want to use the word exploit, but convey to its fullest.
0: That's a great question too, because, um, a lot of artists will lie when they answer that question. <laughs> oh, I get into this other zone and uh... the- no, they don't. I mean, yeah. once in a while you can get into that other zone where you're just, it's just coming out of you and you're sure. not even conscious of it. that That's the ideal. Yeah, And, uh, I, it's actually much easier to do that in the practice room than it is on the concert stage. Cause you've got all these eyes looking at you, but,
2: right.
0: um, I mean, in general, I'm trying to say something. Mm-hmm. What is it I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say, either, you know, the bass is great. Listen to this, yeah. or, um, uh, you know, here's a little bit of humor. The music has humor in it. And I'm going to try to bring that out. And, uh, um, you know, so it it to me, it's more sound related. I'm thinking and f- trying to feel it. Okay. And uh, and then I try to get rid of you know the audience. I I find that the easiest performance venue for for me is not is not ten friends or twenty family members. That's the hardest for me. It's two thousand people. Sure bright lights i can't see them yeah and kind of gives you liberty to just show off and and it's almost like you're another person you just go out there and and let it go i find that to be the easiest type of uh, venue to to play in
1: because then when you take the stage you're automatically stepping into this mentality of let go Yeah,
0: Yeah. I'm sure that's what happens with actors and actresses, you know. And uh, some of them, you know, so get into their role that they take it home with them and and, and that person as opposed to themselves. But uh, it's
1: not bad. When uh, we'll wrap it up here soon in a second, but a couple questions. When trying to say something, trying sounds like it's an effort that's not going to work out. When you're communicating this piece of music to the audience it's a story you're telling them a story that the composer wrote and so how much have you studied the nature of storytelling to impact a performance that's something i only ask that because um a long time ago when i was debating whether i was going to go to college or what i thought about college um i almost wanted to well, no, I did want to go and study literature because how that would facilitate my musicianship and understand the, the arc of a story, you know, and how this would impact me as a, a soloist, you know, within jazz. Um, have you taken interest in that, That where you've um, studied it on the side or kind of, you know, in the back of your mind, it's something you're thinking about?
0: Gosh, that's that's. <clears throat> I I wish you'd asked me that question 20 years ago. I should have <laughs> done more. Um, not not so much in terms of studying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I like to read, and I like stories. And and one um, one analogy I use is that when you play a piece, you're taking you're the guided you're the tour guide. Yeah, and you're taking your listeners on a guided tour. And what often happens in music, we get to the high point and the young, immature musician will just go right over it and keep going. And they don't allow the music to arrive at the high point, whether that means stretching or even putting a fermata or whatever. And so I say, well, if you're a tour guide and I'm going on a tour with you, you take me to the top of the mountain and you don't even give me time to take my camera out and take a picture. I want my money back. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same in, in music. that uh, So we're yeah telling the story. But it's, I suppose the only experience I really have is uh, having had four children. I, I read a lot of storybooks. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, you know, you're so tired and you're reading to them. And you uh, go, uh, once upon a time, they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. The and, and then they go, no, Daddy, no, you are got to read the story. Yeah. And, uh, so...
1: Uh, are your children are your children musicians
0: or artists or creatives? Uh, one one of my sons two sons and two daughters okay. um, uh, my second son plays bass and he does everything i don't do so okay. i go up to a little bit of jazz and okay. goes from a lot of jazz and upright to electric and all the way up through rock funk oh, cool. crossover cutting edge uh, contemporary he, he was, uh, he was the number one electric bass player in uh, China until the COVID hit. Wow. And he left right before COVID hit to come home and visit, and he hasn't been back since. So. Was he touring there? What was he doing over there? Yeah, he was actually uh, living in Beijing, and then they would okay. fly all over the country to do all sorts of stuff. Oh, wow. And shows and TV, movies, just everything.
1: Oh, wow. To mm-hmm. uh, play on the soundtrack, cut the sessions for him?
0: Yeah. Okay. He did that and did yeah. he go to UNT? Uh, no, he went to the LA Music Academy before they changed their name. I'm sure. not quite sure what it is now, but
1: it's uh, Los Angeles Academy of Contemporary Arts or something.
0: Yeah.
1: LACA, LACMA. There's Because there's an art gallery out here mm. that has a very similar acronym, and I get them confused all the time. But I know the one you're talking about. Uh, over in Pasadena, Gary Willis used to be mm. over there, I think. See, all, all
0: my kids are involved in creative type endeavors. My one daughter was a modern dancer until COVID wow. hit. Okay, and, uh, uh, and then my oldest son and my youngest daughter are both uh, doctoral students in psychology. Oh, wow! And uh, I find that to, that, that stuff
1: amazing. fascinates me. That stuff that's oh. and how that relates to music and uh, when you talk about perception and like robbing the listener of how they perceived something, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's so fascinating to me, specifically within the arts of like, you can have a room full of 2000 people and everybody will have a different takeaway and maybe not drastically different, but they'll have a personal takeaway. So we're all looking at it through this lens of our own past and our own hopes, our own fears, our own traumas, our own, you know. All these personal things that are shaped by our past and things that shape our mind—all that stuff—I'm so I'm so interested in all that stuff.
0: That's fabulous, yeah. It's,
1: uh, have talking to them shaped your teaching at all? With talking to them about what they do with psychology, has this uh, kind of maybe you've uh, ingrained some of
0: that as an educator? Yeah, because uh, I think all teachers should should have to be required to take a course in, yeah. in psychology so you learn better how to interact with people. Mine was a little more, you know, uh, trial by air sure. and trial by fire. <laughs> but uh, I love sitting in the room listening to them banter and I'm, I'm like at a tennis match going back <laughs> and forth. Kind of one-up each other with their knowledge. Right.
1: right. You, just, you just call out the score? Like, point left chair. Yeah. <laughs> all right, now we're tied. Your serve. <laughs> Jeff, this has been great, man. Thank you so much uh, for taking yeah. the time. Thank you so much for compiling from the base community all the information in this book. This is, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I had not known of it sooner because this is, I wish I would have had this when I started teaching and this would have, Saved me countless hours (laughs) of what happens if, what happens if, what happens if. Uh, There's a lot of a lot of healthy direction and a lot of great insight in that book. And thank you uh,
0: for that. I call it uh, double bass, the ultimate challenge. People laugh at that, but. I ask all of my students, especially when I do master classes and and the parents are there at the base camp final concerts, I'll say, tell me one other activity in your every day where you have to juggle so many balls that we do. Let's look at them. We've got to balance the instrument. We have to put the left hand in the right position with the curved fingers. We have to hold the bow correctly. We have to move it across string in the right place to create a sound, all based on what that little black dot on the white page is indicating to us in a totally different language morse code we have to not only do that we have to do it at the right dynamic with the right accent we have to do it in time and in tune with the guy standing next to us we have to also follow the the section leader and on top of that we have to follow the conductor and then we put the sound out there that's supposed to be filled with some form of expression yeah how many how many Things That's 20 balls right there. That yeah, we I know. And uh, uh, um, I, I don't think there's anything else in life that is as complicated as what we do.
1: All right, all right, all right. That was my discussion with Jeff Radetic. Um, I would like to bring specific attention to... Jeff, talking about Pavarotti, and my direct response was the guy from Metallica. <laughs> it's like a sommelier commenting on a Spanish wine, and I'm just in the background like, bro, throw me another Bud Light. <laughs> it's awful. Lot. I should have used a little bit more discretion on that one. Uh, it's I've, So many times during that talk with Jeff, I felt like I was getting a lesson. It was great. There's so many things uh I, I, I mentally took a note of and have explored in my playing since since our conversation specifically about the you know play a little bit flat vibrato vibrato going into pitch things like that i've actually been checking that out a lot on the fretless some such a wealth of information and, and knowledge and artistry on the double bass um, again please you stop by the bass shed.com backslash podcast sla- backslash Jeff Bradetich uh, to check out the links learn about the foundation uh, check out the book double bass the ultimate challenge it's, it's amazing it's absolutely amazing and thank you Jeff for everything uh, you've contributed and are still contributing to the bass community If you are enjoying the Base Shed Podcast, please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to it. Uh, Feel free to leave a comment if you feel like commenting. Uh, And that's all I got for this one, folks. That's all I got. I will catch you on the next one in a minute.